I want to talk today about the contrast between myths that are widely believed by the public at large and what I regard as a reality which typically contradicts those myths. Well, hey there, everyone. I'm Dave Yost, and this is okay. Let me tell you why you're wrong. This week, we're going to be talking about a topic that we we've touched on a few times in previous episodes, and honestly, it's it's pretty hard not to touch on it because it can be considered as one of the more fundamental ideas in economics. What we're talking about today is what's called comparative advantage. And it's pretty central to understanding economic theory when it comes to trade, especially international trade. Now, while comparative advantage is a long-standing idea in economics, it's, it's not without its share of detractors, and there are some interesting points to be made against it. So we'll be covering that, uh, those as well. As per usual, don't expect to walk out of this episode with a rock-solid doctrine that will work in every situation. Comparative advantage, like everything else in economics, just depends. Uh, depends on a lot of variables and priorities. So let's start with the, the textbook definition of the term and, and start to unpack it from there. Comparative advantage is defined as referring to the gains from trade for individuals, firms, and or nations which arise from their factor endowments or technological progress. Okay? Nice and clear to everybody? Right. How about we expand on that a little bit? Comparative advantage is meant to describe why trade at, at all levels is a good thing and is actually the preferred state of the economy. Now, before we get too far into the weeds with the idea of comparative advantage, let me first give you a little background on where the idea comes from. Or I guess, to be more accurate, who codified the idea? As you all 
should be used to by now, uh, most of the truly impactful ideas in economics can't really be said to have been invented by an economist. Economics is, at its core, a subject that studies human behavior. So when an economist notes something about the economy, they're really just observing a thing that's, that's already happening. The really fundamental theories in economics weren't invented by economists who get the credit for them. Those guys were just the first ones to take note of something that had been happening for a long time before anyone thought to write it down. Slight tangent. I saw a tweet last week that was uh, posted to Facebook on the page uh, for the American Socialist. The tweet read, quote, Capitalism has existed for less than 1% of recorded history, and we might literally destroy the planet under it. But it's the only system that works, works in sarcastic quotes, and we have to keep doing it forever. Now, if you're wondering why someone with, with my outlook on economics is seeing posts from the American Socialist in my feed, uh, don't worry. I haven't been stringing you all along. It, it came up because a friend of mine who is also an economist had commented on it to argue with the basic premise. I chimed in as well and was happy to see that I was far from alone on that. Uh, if you haven't sussed it out already, the problem with that guy's tweet is that it shows a, well, a complete lack of understanding about what he's talking about. By saying that capitalism has only existed for 1% of human history, he's presumably under the impression that capitalism was invented by Adam Smith when he wrote The Wealth of Nations in 1776. Now, if you've been listening to The Wealth of Nations episodes, you're aware that Adam Smith never claimed to be creating a system of economics. Rather, he was pointing out key elements of what was in existence around him. It's not like, or really, what, what it's like is, it, it's like things in natural science. Charles Darwin didn't invent evolution. He observed it. Evolution had been occurring long before the origin of the species was written. Darwin just gets credit for codifying the idea, putting it down on paper in a coherent argument in favor of the idea. Likewise, Adam Smith didn't invent capitalism. He merely observed it. He talks about the, this constantly in his book. Most of the concepts that Smith discusses involve an, an example that goes back to the days of early hunter-gatherer mankind in an effort to demonstrate how the ideas of a, a capitalistic system are naturally occurring in our interactions with other human beings. At no point does Smith claim to be creating a system. Rather, he's simply showing that one has cropped up naturally and is, is taking us through how it appears to operate. If we're defining capitalism as an economic system wherein the means of production are controlled by private interests, then capitalism has existed really ever since there was a means of production to control. 
Other systems, like feudalism, have at times encroached on it and taken over. But a basic market system with private ownership seems to be the default for humankind ever since there was a humankind. So I point that out, not to bag on self-professed socialists. We'll probably have a whole episode in the future where I give my full critique on socialism. But rather to make the point that most economists are not creating or inventing the ideas that they're famous for. Instead, they're observing something that is happening and, and laying out the idea in a way that can be discussed and have its merits debated. And the economist that we're going to be talking about today is no different. The man gets credit for codifying comparative advantage, uh, and his name is David Ricardo. If you manage to stay awake through any of the economics classes that you were made to take, and, and if you did, kudos to you, because those basic econ classes are rough even for those of us who like the subject. You've probably heard this guy's name before. If you're not familiar with him, David Ricardo was born in London in 1772. Uh, looking at his life, if Ricardo were alive today, uh, he'd probably be selected as the spokesman for Dosakis, as their latest, most interesting man in the world. In fact, <clears throat> let's try it, just to see how it fits. No embellishment, I'm just going to read straight from his bio. He was born the third child of 17 in a Sephardic Jewish family that was originally from Portugal. At age 21, he eloped with a Quaker named Priscilla Ann Wilkinson and against his father's wishes converted to Unitarianism. He made the bulk of his fortune as the result of speculation on the outcome of the Battle of Waterloo, where he was said to have netted upwards of a million sterling in a single day. After that, he immediately retired and purchased an estate in Gloucestershire, which is now owned by Princess Anne. He was one of the original members of the Geologic Society. In August 1818, he bought Lord Portlington's seat in Parliament for £4,000. In Parliament, he voted for repeal of the Blasphemous and Sedition Libel Acts as well as for the abolition of the death penalty for forgery. His friend John Lewis Mallet commented, quote, He meets you upon every subject that he has studied with a mind made up and opinions in the nature of mathematical truths. He spoke of parliamentary reform and ballot as a man who would bring such things about and destroy the existing system tomorrow, if it were in his power, and without the slightest doubt on the result. It is this very quality of the man's mind, his entire disregard of experience and practice, which makes me doubtful of his opinions on political economy. David Ricardo is the most interesting man in the world. I don't always drink beer, but when I do, it had better come from a country that has a lower opportunity cost for making beer than my own. Stay thirsty, my friends. So yeah, that's David Ricardo. And he would probably have approved of Dosaki's sponsorship because 
It's made in Monterey, Mexico, and, and owned by Heineken International, who sells their products all over the world. And as we'll see, that's a situation that David Ricardo would very much be in favor of. But you may be asking yourself, hey, you mentioned financial speculation and parliament. When did this guy have time to be a famous, famous economist? And true to form, the answer to that would be in his spare time. That's right. Radically shaping the philosophy of political economics would have most accurately been considered David Ricardo's side hustle. Uh, he had become interested in the subject after reading Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations and started writing articles regarding his thoughts on economics for the Morning Chronicle at the age of 37. Throughout the course of his articles, he developed many ideas about economics that are still debated to this day. Some expanding on things he read in The Wealth of Nations, some wholly original. In his 1817 work, Principles of Political Economy and Taxation, again, another economist with just a real knack for a catchy title, uh, he discussed his own version of value theory, expanding on Smith's idea that value derives from the, the labor that was required to produce a good. I'm just going to leave that there for now. There, there's, there's a much larger debate to be had when it comes to the labor theory of value, and, and it is very much a debate, because I can point to a lot of points in favor and a lot of points against it. So, we're going to cover that in, in its entirety another time. For now, just know that Ricardo weighed in on the idea as well. He also advanced theories on wages and profits, again, expanding on some of Smith's ideas. Uh, he said, quote, profits depend on higher low wages. Wages on the price of necessaries, and the price of necessaries chiefly on the price of food, which should sound familiar if you've been keeping up with our Wealth of Nations episodes. Ricardo is also famous for advancing the idea that would become known as Ricardian equivalence. Uh, in it, he suggests that under certain conditions, there's no difference in the effect on the economy in, in how a government chooses to fund its spending, either through higher taxation or through issuing debt. Now, there's an interesting logic to this, and again, it's worth spending much more time on, so we'll table that for now. But while Ricardo himself uh, rejected the idea eventually, I think it would be interesting and useful to explore the logic behind it at a later time. Then, of course, that brings us to what is likely considered David Ricardo's most impactful contribution to economics, and the topic for this episode, conveniently enough, that of course being comparative advantage. So, back to what uh, we started off with, what is comparative advantage? Okay, let's go back to our textbook definition, and, and as promised, we're going to unpack it here. Again, comparative advantage refers to the gains from trade at all levels, uh, which come from their factor endowments or technological progress. Now, what Ricardo is talking about here is based around a simple question with a very complex answer, or, or at least more complex than some might think. The question is, 
why do we engage in trade? Or, or really, I suppose a, a better way of saying it is, why should we engage in trade? And just to be clear, when we're talking about trade here, we're talking about trade on all levels. That applies to trade on the individual level, like between two people, uh, trade on the mid-level, like between firms or, or even local geographies, you know, village-to-village -village kind of stuff, and trade on the macro level, like between nations. So, why should we engage in trade? Well, and, and this is painting with a, a very broad brush here, but after feudalism uh, started to fade out of existence in Europe around the 1500s, it, it was replaced by what is commonly referred to as a system called mercantilism. And under mercantilism, the prevailing wisdom was that the whole point of trade was to sell more goods to other places than you bought thus running a trade surplus and allowing you to accumulate wealth in the form of gold and silver that was paid to you for what you exported. And this is one of those ideas that, that falls into the category of making sense, or at least making enough sense. We've covered a number of other ideas that fall into the same category on the podcast, and I, I'm sure that we'll continue to hit on them fairly regularly. It's an idea that briefs well. It sounds good. It, it sounds like a sensible approach. That is, until you really think about it. After all, if the pursuit of a trade surplus and the accumulation of wealth that comes from that is the goal of your economy, then it's also going to be the goal for every other economy. And since all the players in the game can't possibly run trade surpluses simultaneously, because if you're exporting more than you're importing, then someone else has to be importing more than they're exporting, this is going to lead to contentious and unproductive trade relations as everyone is trying to edge out everyone else when it comes to trade. Now again, that may sound like a good and sensible system. It would, in theory, create competition for the best exports, and, and competition is always good. The problem is that under mercantilism, the government regulations of, of the nation's economy are used to leverage the national output at the expense of other rival nations. What that means is that it's not a system where every country is competing to make the best product, and thus being able to export more than its rivals. It's a system where a nation is making a product for export, but refusing to allow imports in, regardless of their price or quality, if it would mean running a trade deficit. It's a system where the government regulated trade to ensure a trade surplus at all costs. And that leads to, to people in that nation's economy paying a higher price for lower quality goods because barriers to free trade are put into place in order to ensure that exports outnumber imports. What Ricardo was proposing, in, in contrast to the mercantilist idea, was that trade serves 
a different purpose than, than simply the profits gained by selling to someone else. With the idea of comparative advantage, David Ricardo put forward the idea that the gains from trade in, existed in more dimensions than the accumulation of wealth. The trade, that, the trade itself served a greater social purpose. Think about it this way. When we engage in trade, we are getting the product that we exchange for, yes. But that is not the sum total of the value of that exchange. What we're also getting from engaging in trade is all the saved opportunity cost of having to produce the good that we exchanged uh, for, for ourselves. Let's start by stealing a page from Adam Smith and thinking about this situation at the most micro level, and then we'll expand it out from there. So let's imagine that we're living in a post-apocalyptic world. The, the great societal collapse has occurred, and we are back to living in a Hobbesian state of nature. We live in Thunderdome. Now, you, you living in this world, have established your own little homestead. And at least for now, let's, let's assume that despite being a state of nature, security is not a major concern. Your homestead is far enough away from everything and everyone that you don't have to worry about uh, Immortan Joe and his war boys or Imperator Furiosa bothering you. By the way, if you don't get those references, stop listening to this podcast right now and go watch Mad Max Fury Road. It's incredible. Seriously, I'll, I'll wait. Okay, welcome back. Wasn't that movie amazing? <laughs> right? So, where were we? Uh, oh, right. So, you've got your little homestead. And now that you have that established, you have to perform all the functions of labor for your day-to-day -day life. You have to grow your own food, fetch and purify your own water, maintain your own home, cut your own firewood, and uh, if this is starting to sound tempting to you, don't forget that this is post-apocalyptic, so you still remember all the conveniences of modern society. And while you might be happy to be free from things like your cell phone or social media, there are going to be conveniences that you still want to have. Maybe you want a car, uh, which you can have, except now you have to drill for your own oil and then process it into gasoline. Or, or maybe you want to have electric lights, uh, in which case you need to generate your own electricity and build and maintain everything that comes with that. Point being, whatever it is that you want, whether it's your basic needs like food and shelter or a convenience, you have to put in the labor to make it. And again, some of you that might sound like fun, being your own little Robinson Crusoe. But don't forget, that each and every one of those tasks takes time. And once you factor in how long it takes you to plant and maintain your crops, hunt for wild game, and fetch water and boil it out so you can drink it, you don't really have any free hours left in the day to work on your homemade oil derrick or your wind turbine for electricity. 
to describe this situation, I'm, I'm going to teach you all a, a cool word that you can uh, use to, uh, I'm sure, impress your friends. Uh, it's called autarky. It's, it basically refers to a state of total self-sufficiency. So you've achieved autarky, but the thing about human existence back in the days where people lived in a state of autarky is there wasn't much time for relaxa relaxation, leisure, or developing technological advancements. You're going to be too busy going about the business of, well, not dying. So let's say you're living your miserable autarkic life uh, and, and you lay in bed one night wishing that you had something as simple as uh, a hunting knife. It's a pretty practical item. It would make your life easier to have one. But the problem is that under autarky, if you want a hunting knife, you have to make one yourself. Which means that you have to go out and mine some iron ore, build a forge, heat and hammer out the iron, cool it, and attach it to a handle, which you also presumably had to make yourself. Now the question that needs asking here, and, and the question at the heart of David Ricardo's idea, is that while you're doing all of that, what else could you have been doing? The question is the basic uh, it is the basis of a term we use a lot in economics, a term I'm sure you've heard me say plenty of times in past episodes. Uh, that term is opportunity cost. When you do anything, there is an associated opportunity cost, because by doing something, you are inherently preventing yourself from doing something else. We talked about this way back in the episode on the economics of college education. By going to college, you earn a degree that should get you a higher paying job. But there's still an opportunity cost associated with that because while you're in school, you're missing out on four years where you could have been working and earning a full salary in a job that doesn't require a college education. Now, the question is, does the higher salary that you get from a job that does require a college degree outweigh the money that you didn't make by going right into the job market. But whether it does or not, it's still considered an opportunity cost. So you've got your knife. And it's a pretty shoddy one because you're not a professional blacksmith, but you have it. Again, in the time it took you to make your janky hunting knife, what weren't you doing that you could uh, do otherwise? And this comes back to trade and the ambiguous benefits of it. If, instead of going through the rigmarole of making your own knife from scratch, you were able to make contact with somebody who, thanks to the division of labor, was an expert knife maker, and trade some of your uh, wheat or game or clean water for one of their expertly made knives, then not only do you get the knife, but you also get all the time that it would have taken you to make that knife on your own back. Plus, the quality of the knife is better. All that from trade. Now, a mercantilist would look at that and be horrified. 
because you gave up some of your accumulated wealth in order to, at least in the form of, you know, food and water stockpiles, whatever you traded for the knife. But as you should see by this point, that's really a narrow and obtuse way of looking at the exchange. Sticking in the micro for, for one more example, because this variation is going to play out later. Let's say in, in your uh, autarky state, you... Your land allows you to grow some lima beans, and, and you have access to a river that lets you fish. But you discover that your, your distant neighbor can grow wheat, and he's used his river access to construct a mill. Now, you could live off of a never-changing diet of fish and lima beans, or... You could put in the time to plant wheat, maintain that crop, chop wood, fashion it into lumber, and build a mill. Or you could just trade some of your fish and lima beans for some ground wheat that you can turn into bread. The point is, with trade, you get twice the goods for half the work. And it's that equation that led David Ricardo to consider that there were greater benefits to, ex er, to engaging in trade other than simply the money you made by selling a product to someone else. With that established, let's hop up to the mid-level and see if the idea still holds. For this one, we're going to leave the post-apocalyptic landscape behind and instead imagine that you're the the owner and CEO of a burgeoning company that makes, I don't know, coffee makers. I think that's my subconscious way of saying I want a cup of coffee, but we'll go with it. Now, you started this company because you had an idea for a better way to make a coffee maker. A way that produces a better cup of coffee and costs less to make than anything else on the market. It's the perfect storm of capitalism. But of course, you can't just make the product. If you want to sell the product, you also have to distribute it. So you hire a bunch of truck drivers as part of your company and start running your own distribution. However, now you've got a problem. You got into this business to make coffee makers. That's your field of expertise. That's your passion. But now... You have to spend a fair amount of your time going over trucking routes and maintenance schedules because those are a significant issue as it relates to your distribution arm. By keeping it internal, you don't have to give up capital, but you're creating inefficiencies in the form of the opportunity cost imposed on you uh, and, and your work developing, say, the, the Mark II model of your coffee maker. Ricardo would tell you instead, hire a separate firm to handle your distribution, paying them money, and thus essentially trading, for their efforts and expertise. And by doing so, you're out the money that you had to pay them, but you gain back all the time that you would have had to spend on distribution-related issues. Time you can now put towards doing something that you're good at. Finally, we come to the macro level. Uh, this is nations trading with other nations. And there is no clearer example of the gains 
laid out under comparative advantage than the trade relationship between the U.S. and China. Now, this may get me some angry comments and emails, but stay with me here for, for a minute and let me lay out the Ricardian view of the situation. When looking at the gains from trade, the U.S. benefits from trading with China, uh, they're massive. What we're doing is letting China handle the bulk of basic low-skilled manufacturing, which, which gets done as cheaply as possible there, thus ensuring that the price those goods sell for uh, is much lower. That's just the upfront benefit. The Ricardian idea would say that in addition to that, it frees up the U.S. labor force to do other things. Now, I'm sure many of you just heard me say that and are thinking, when you say it frees up the U.S. labor force, you mean it puts us into unemployment. And that's an understandable bit of skepticism in the face of what can be a rather detached economic theory. Yes, manufacturing jobs that are being taken by the Chinese mean that those jobs cease to exist in the U.S. And the people that were doing those jobs are now unemployed. But rather than mourn the loss, David Ricardo and, and most economists would say that we need to seize the opportunity. Those low-skill manufacturing jobs, we, we don't have to do that anymore. We've got people for that. What our labor force needs to be doing are the jobs that, because of our national disposition, because of our available technology, because of our level of education and standard of living, because of all those factors, our labor force needs to be working on the jobs that can only be done by a people in our position. Instead of insisting on autarky, we import our low-skill manufactured goods from people who can make them cheaper than we can. Meanwhile, we direct our efforts towards high-skill manufacturing, which, because of our disposition, we're in a better position to do. And we, in turn, export those goods to the rest of the countries that can't make these products. We get our cheap, low-skill manufactured goods, as well as our expensive, high-skill manufactured goods, all for half the effort that it would take us to do both. And if you think that this is entirely theoretical, it's not. This is exactly what Germany is doing right now. They're not fighting to keep their low-skill manufacturing sector. Instead, they've incentivized their businesses and their labor force to turn towards high-skilled manufacturing. And they are dominating the market there. If you still want to, to view the wor world in mercantilist terms, you can. But Germany's trade surplus in 2016 was 270 billion euros. So maybe they, and David Ricardo, know what they're talking about. Comparative advantage is all about using what you've got, what makes you special. Whether you're a person, a firm, or a country, to maximize your own output while providing the rest of your needs through trade. You do your thing and then trade for everything else that you need. It allows for a, a macro form of the kind of specialization that comes out of the division of labor that Adam Smith first talked about. 
that's what the textbook definition is referring to when they talk about using factor endowments to create gains from trade. Could we have our labor force doing basic assembly work? Sure. But you have to ask, isn't that a waste of a comparatively highly skilled, highly educated labor force? Could we maintain a status quo where U.S. workers were able to keep doing jobs below their capabilities? Sure. But you have to ask, what else could they be doing that they aren't because we're maintaining this status quo? That's the heart of comparative advantage. Now, before we hoist comparative advantage up as a a rock-solid economic dogma, I think it's important that we cover some of the criticisms of Ricardo and his theory. That's right. It wouldn't be a discussion of economics if there wasn't a whole section dedicated to knocking down what I just put up. I suppose it's not that extreme, and some of these arguments against comparative advantage hold less water than others, but I think it's always important to point out the dissenting ideas when we're talking about stuff like this, because in most cases, they they can be just as instructive as the theory itself. Uh, One of the earliest criticisms of Ricardo's theory was, in fact, uh, David Ricardo himself. Uh, Leave it to the most interesting man in the world to provide the counter uh, to his own argument. Really, though, I I guess this would be more closely considered uh, a revision. Ricardo pointed out that in order for the gains that come from comparative advantage to be fully realized... Capital, uh, that's capital with an A, not an O, uh, would have to be immobile, meaning once you sold your export off to some other place, the money that was paid for it would remain uh, generally within your local economy. Ricardo feared that if capital were mobile, meaning that it could flow across borders easily, that it would lead to offshoring. Uh, From our modern perspective, uh, this concern makes David Ricardo look more like Nostradamus. Because that's exactly what we see happening. Businesses make money through trade, but in order to dodge taxes, uh, they will ensure that that money stays out of their own country, uh, or their their country of origin. Uh, Or they'll incorporate in a place where there are no corporate taxes, thus negating some of the benefits that would come from trade in the vein of comparative advantage. And while Ricardo is right, prophetic really, uh, in his concern here, I, I don't think that it's I don't think it entirely invalidates his theory. Down at the consumer level, people are still benefiting from getting their products cheaper through imports. Uh, Nations and societies are still benefiting from not having to incur the opportunity cost of producing every product locally. It's just that we're losing out on some of the benefits that would come from free trade because of the mobility of capital. What I consider a more prescient counterpoint is the one that that comes from Utsa 
Potnik, and I'm sure I've mispronounced that, I apologize, uh, an Indian Marxist economist, uh, she pointed out that Ricardo's theory makes a glaring assumption as it relates to wealth disparity between trading partners. Her argument is that comparative advantage only really works if you assume that both goods involved in the exchange are produced and are producible. What this means is when you have a poor country trying to enter the realm of international trade, because they're still developing, they, they likely don't have much of a manufacturing capability, but they need to trade in order to get the things and the capital that will allow them to build that manufacturing capability. So what do they do? Well, in most cases, the poor countries tend to sell their natural resources in exchange for manufactured goods. And the problem there is that while manufactured goods can, can just keep being produced, once natural resources are gone, they're gone. So a poor country could enter into international trade, hoping to get all the benefits of comparative advantage. But once their resources are spent, they can be left with really nothing to show for it. Now, like I said, this is a fair point. Uh, my only counter to Utsa Patnik here is that I'm not sure if that dynamic where, where a poor country can enter into trade and wind up getting no great gains in the end, I'm not sure if that's the fault of comparative advantage or the fault of those in charge of that poor country. I mean, if I buy a toaster, but instead of bread, I start putting oily rags into it and, and setting it to cook, can I really blame the company that made the toaster when the thing catches on fire? I, I'm, I'm not trying to trivialize the plight of developing countries, but there is an implied task when it comes to taking part in the gains that come from international trade. Most natural resources are finite, so if you're going to sell them off, you had better be using the proceeds to create an economy that can replace the mining of your natural resources when they run out. If instead you use the proceeds to buy arms so you can fight a war against some faction within your country that you don't like or attack one of your neighbors, I see that as a poor decision-making on the part of that country and not a reason to dismiss the potential benefits of trade. Now again, there's any number of examples where the richer countries uh, more than a little manipulate the poorer countries into selling off their resources and not really doing anything useful with the money. So we can't forget about that. Uh, but but I do I, I worry that Utsapatnik is is coming dangerously close to infantilizing developing nations a, a little bit, assuming that we can't engage in trade with them because they couldn't possibly understand the ramifications of not spending the proceeds of trade wisely. Uh, I, I, again, I, it's a good point and and one definitely worth considering but but i don't know as if i buy it as as uh, something that would 
invalidate the Ricardian idea of comparative advantage. Another critic who brings up an interesting point is Ha Jun Chang, a, a Korean industrial economist, whose issue with comparative advantage is that he feels that it only works under a status quo. What he's saying is that comparative advantage works so long as I'm okay never doing anything but fishing, and you're okay never doing anything but grinding wheat. Because if I decide that grinding wheat sounds like a good racket and start doing that myself, then all the benefits that come from the comparative advantage dynamic break down. And now we're both just left with a bunch of ground wheat that neither of us wants. And there's something worth exploring here. Uh, let's think about it at the, at the macro level. Right now, when looking at the trade relationship between the U.S. and China, we can see a lot of the gains of uh, that Ricardo was talking about. China takes on the low-skill manufacturing jobs, and in turn, it frees up the U.S. labor force to do more complex things. Perfect, right? But what if China aspires to do more? What if the Chinese equivalent of Elon Musk says, well, we want to make cars and airplanes and be leaders in developing new technology? What happens then? And that frames out a real issue, because if the gains of comparative advantage can only be realized so long as uh, everyone stays in their relative places, then there are going to be problems. Uh, aspiring to more is a trait of human beings, not just of one country. So everyone is always going to want to do the most profitable thing. Now, again, point well made, but my, my counter to Chang, though, is that it, well, it goes back to that line that I've stolen before from Back to the Future, or I guess at least a modified version of it. Chang is, in fact, thinking fourth dimensionally, because he's thinking that one party in the equation will aspire to more than just the status quo. But where I think his criticism falls a little flat, uh, or at least it falls flat for me, is that he's not considering that the other party isn't content with the status quo either. Comparative advantage still holds if I buy my own, or I build my own mill and start grinding wheat into flour, so long as you give up the wheat grinding business and become a dairy farmer. Now, I'm making flour, but you're making milk, so we can still trade and gain the benefits from that. If China starts shifting its labor force to more skilled manufacturing jobs, that's only a problem if the U.S. doesn't shift as well, and it's entirely likely that the U.S. would. China starts building cars, and the U.S. starts building spaceships. China starts building spaceships, and the U.S. starts building... I don't know, something more sci-fi than a spaceship. Whatever, it doesn't matter. The only problem would occur if we were both trying to do the same thing. But because we're all riding the arc of human progress together, 
then all players should be moving along that arc simultaneously. Chang's point only really holds if one player were to stagnate and insist on remaining where they were when it comes to what they produce. If trading partners exist in the same production space, that drives us back to mercantilism. But so long as we're always on a different production space, it doesn't even really matter what our production spaces are. They just need to be different so we can trade. Again, these criticisms, while, while I don't feel that they break the idea of comparative advantage, they are fair points for consideration when thinking about Ricardo's ideas. They shouldn't be dismissed or ignored. They should be engaged and explored. Uh, Ricardo's work, like all economic theory, works under specific assumptions. In a lot of ways, most economic theory is best kept in the abstract, more of a guiding idea rather than an absolute dogma. The problem that I often see is that people, usually those with only a passing familiarity with the subject, want to take a strong stance on economic theory. They want to say that free trade is always right. It's not. Or they want to say that free trade isn't fair, so uh, protectionism is always right. Eh, it's really not. But as we've covered many times here, and sorry if you're getting tired of hearing me say it, uh, that's just not how economics works. The benefits outlined by David Ricardo are real but there are any number of situations where the potential costs could outweigh them. Instead of treating economic theory in absolutes, I think it's more productive to use it as a way of, of, of looking at a given issue while still letting the specific facts of that issue hold sway. And that's our show. As always, if you want to tell me why I'm wrong, or again, I, I guess why David Ricardo is wrong, come on out, join the Facebook group. Uh, you can search it by title in Facebook or simply click on the link in the show notes for this episode. If you are not a Facebook user, you can always email me directly at okayletmetellyouwhyyou'rewrong at gmail.com. All one word, no punctuation. Okay is spelled O-K-A-Y. Uh, thanks always to George Sacco for composing the music that I use in the intro and outro of the show. If you're liking what you hear, uh, please take a minute, throw me that five-star rating on iTunes. Uh, thanks to all of you who have taken the time uh, to drop a rating and to those of you who have taken time to write a review. Again, sorry this episode didn't come out on Monday uh, when I usually drop new episodes, but... As I said last time, with my new schedule, uh, release days for new episodes may have to float around a little bit for the near future. Uh, my goal is to keep giving you a new episode every week. It's just that what day of that week it's going to come out may vary. Hopefully this won't be for too much longer and I can get back to a more set release schedule. Thank you all for bearing with me. And uh, with that, thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, we'll be back uh, next week with another chapter episode from The Wealth of Nations. We are finally into book two, so that's pretty exciting. Uh, and with that, I'm Dave Yost, 
And this has been okay. Let me tell you why you're wrong.